Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I've seen automobile crashes, you know, aftermaths, and I've never seen anything like it. The remains of a car, it was almost like it was partially amputated. Welcome to episode 8 of Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, with me, Colin McLaren. A long career as a homicide cop has left me hating loose ends when it comes to any sudden death. And the passing of Princess Diana on August the 31st, 1997, is full of loose ends. There were so many theories about the driver, about the car, about the crash, about everything concerned with Diana's death. We had to wait for a very, very long time to try and get to the truth. And the truth is still not been fully disclosed. I came to Paris 22 years ago in the immediate aftermath of the car crash that killed Diana, Princess of Wales, to see what I could find out about what really happened that night. I've now returned to Paris with a team including investigative journalists Dylan Howard and Aaron Tinney and French paparazzo Pierre to finish the job. In the last episode, we looked at the physical evidence left at the crash scene. Now, as in any proper police investigation, we're going to examine witnesses to the crash to see what they can tell us about the death of Diana. The first of these is Pierre, who, as one of the pack of photographers in pursuit of the princess that night, arrived in the tunnel minutes after the crash. I was on one side of a tunnel where I could see the car very clearly. I could see there was already a couple of ambulances and I ran down the tunnel and I almost entered the tunnel. Only just there was a policeman at the entrance of the tunnel who stopped me and pushed me outside the tunnel. I got really within a few yards of the car. So I saw the car and that was my first shock. Was it still smoking? No, it wasn't, but uh, you could see the, the state of the car and it was absolutely destroyed mm -hmm. and I was shocked because I had never ever seen a Mercedes in that state, ever. And, and I haven't seen the wreckage of the car. Immediately in my mind I said, well, whoever was in there is dead. That's what I saw straight away. And then I saw my friends all lined up against the wall on the other part of the tunnel behind the poles. Did you notice that the Mercedes-Benz was it facing in, in the proper way through the tunnel, or did you notice if it had turned around? It was turned around... Uh, 180 degrees? Sort of 45 degrees, the, the pillar was there, and it was facing the, the wall opposite the pillars, mm -hmm. uh, as I remember. Uh, it's a bit confused still, because uh, I haven't looked at my photos. Uh, at, in, in, that's the way I recall it, anyways. And do you remember the, the micro-ambulances, the, the, the paramedics working on any victims? 
Yes, but uh, I don't remember if they were working. I don't think they were working of anybody inside the car. Uh, I think whoever they had already put Diana and Dodi inside the ambulance, which were parked uh, in front of the car. Mm -hmm. uh, there was two of them, two mm -hmm. ambulances, mm -hmm. I can remember very clearly. There was a lot of blue lights. There was only one policeman guarding the entrance of the tunnel. But they shut down the, the, the tunnel itself, but not the venicity of the tunnel. Like all onlookers, that's where I went afterwards. I went above and uh, you could see, uh, I went on the other side and you could see the ramp, the access of the tunnel. And it was packed with journalists, tourists. Among the tourists at the Place de l'Alma that night were Americans Jack and Robin Firestone. Their trip to Paris had uncanny parallels to Diana's. Several times during that fateful evening, they were at the same place at the same time. And so for any serious investigation into a death, their testimony becomes a curiosity. We went to Paris for a family vacation. We were swept up in a storm of events that we never intended. And it's a story that won't go away. The Firestones arrived in Paris at 3.30 Saturday afternoon, almost exactly the same time as Diana, and checked into their hotel close by the Ritz. And as they did, they noticed the waiting paparazzi outside. They were holding professional camera equipment, microphones, the whole nine yards. And, and they had motorcycles that were parked in front. And they just looked very apprehensive, very nervous, very uh, on edge and just pacing back and forth. It was at the end of the night, however, when their Parisian trip became forever intertwined with Diana's. And we took a cruise on the River Seine. When we got back to the dock at midnight. It was time to get back to the hotel and we got into a taxi and we found ourselves in bumper to bumper traffic approaching the inside of the Alma Tunnel. Jack and Robin arrived in the tunnel from the opposite direction to the car carrying Diana and Dodie and in the immediate aftermath of her crash. The scene is very vivid even after 20 years. As we entered the tunnel, there was definitely unusual traffic. It was a slowdown and we were trying to peek ahead to see what was coming up, but at the same time, we saw these flashing lights bouncing off of the tiled walls from the interior of the tunnel. At that point, in my own thought, I thought that there must be an accident up ahead. We were there between 60 and 90 seconds after the actual crash. Separating the eastbound lane from the westbound is a cement barrier and there are these various vertical pillars. So. You know, it was very easy to see through the pillars and to see the westbound lane, but there was no westbound traffic whatsoever. There was a slight bend in this tunnel. The first thing I noticed were a couple of cars. They were on the other side of the tunnel. I noticed these dark formal cars and they weren't moving. They were parked. One was on an angle, one was more straight. And they definitely would have had to have preceded the car that was holding Henri Paul, Trevor Reese Jones, Princess Diana, and Mohammed Al-Fayed's son, uh, Dodi Al-Fayed. So they would have been entering in the same direction as that, but they would have preceded them in the tunnel. And I didn't see anybody in them. To my recollection, the windows were dark windows, blacked out windows. So I just thought it was a bizarre sight to see. And I didn't focus on that too much because I really now 
started to see some action and activity as we made that bend and noticed motorcycles and a lot of photographers at that point. I looked toward the westbound lane and saw this carnage. The metal of the car just crushed like an accordion. It was turned around. At that time, we didn't know that clearly that it had turned around because it had hit a pillar. I noticed that there were, and this was very odd, motorcycles parked very neatly on the median strip, maybe about somewhere from six to 10 motorcycles. And that really struck me as odd. This was new information. Nowhere in any of the official reports into the crash were the two dark formal cars that Robin saw mentioned. To whom did they belong? What were they doing in the tunnel? And were the motorbikes Jack saw those that the chasing paparazzi had been using? The photographers were certainly present at the scene, and according to the Firestones, they were more interested in getting a picture of the victims than helping them. I recall seeing a police officer at the mouth of the tunnel where their car would have entered very close to the entrance. I initially thought, wow, the police got here really quickly. This police officer was at the west entrance having a little bit of an argument, physical pushing back and forth going on with one of the paparazzi while this one particular paparazzi was arguing with the police officer. It did allow another paparazzi to literally run around from the median side around the officer. He wedged himself between the wall of the tunnel and the crashed car, the front ends of the car, and literally squeezed his body to get into that position so he could lay on top of the car from the waist and take uh, shot after shot after shot. And literally was with his camera flashing into the interior of the car. These photographers take photos from every angle. I mean, inside the car, outside the car. Then one of them would take a photo reaching with his camera inside the car. Flash bulbs going off a mile a minute. It was blinding. They're stray animals, wild animals, and they found a kill in front of them and they were gonna do everything to get the kill. That's what this was like. How do you lay in front of a car with four people in the car that you know were in there that were just tragically really hurt and or killed or on their way to dying? How do you do that? How do you live with that? What Robin saw next continues to haunt her to this very day. At no point did any of us think that there was anybody in the vehicle at that time because it was just absolute chaos. There was no protection of the scene at all, at all. We did not see anybody aiding or assisting. There was no ambulance there. There was no police tape closing off that entrance to the tunnel. There were no cones or anybody protecting the crash itself, the crash site. But as we started to move forward a little bit towards the exit of the tunnel, I couldn't take my eyes off of this photographer and the scene that I'm looking at it and just still trying to make sense. And 
I said, oh my God, there's a woman in the car and it looks like she's gotta be dead. And I thought she was a driver of the car that got wedged in front. None of it was making sense. She had blonde hair. Her head was turned facing me. I didn't really see her eyes. It was like whatever bangs or hair was kind of just over her forehead and on her eyes. Eventually, the Firestones got free of the crash site and made it back to their hotel. At no point were they asked to give a statement by the police or even had their details taken for later interview. As a former policeman myself, this is almost incomprehensible to me. The couple went to bed that night traumatised, but without understanding the true significance of what they had seen. So the next day... I was meeting with the concierge and told him that we had witnessed this horrible, tragic accident the night before. He asked me the name of the tunnel and I said, I don't know. We were coming from the Eiffel Tower and he asked me what time was the that we saw what we saw. And we had told him somewhere around 1230 a.m. I told him about the woman that I saw in the car, the blonde haired woman, and I thought she was dead and they were photographers and I don't know, paparazzi. I don't know what they were, what was going on. And that's when he said, you know, Madame, didn't you hear who was in the car? And at that moment, I remember that my, it felt like my heart stopped. And he said, oh, madame, I'm so sorry. It was the Princess Diana. And I said, what? And right away, I started thinking, but that's that woman that I saw in the car. And I said, is she okay? And he said, no, I'm so sorry. The princess is dead. That Jack and Robin Firestone, as crucial witnesses in the seconds following the accident, were not asked for statements from police in the first place is astounding. But what happened next is almost beyond comprehension. We saw a policeman presumably walking his beat and we walked up to him, we said, Excuse me, officer, uh, we wanted to tell the police that last night, uh, earlier today, we were in this tunnel and uh, we were witnesses to the car crash. He says, oh, that is okay. We, we have enough witnesses. And we looked at each other. Robin says, how can you have enough witnesses? He says, madame, monsieur, we, we have enough witnesses. If you will excuse me, uh, I, I, I must go. And he walked away, couldn't have walked away fast enough for his own good. And man, that really put a whole new dimension on what had happened in the tunnel earlier that morning. That was the start of it. That was the first inkling that something really was not right. It just, I don't know, that's, that's what I got. We'll hear more about what happened with the Firestone's attempt to tell the French police what they saw and the extraordinary lengths the authorities went in order to keep their story under wraps in a future episode. But for the moment, this added a new dimension to the crash. Our analysis of the physical evidence from the scene had ascertained how Diana's Mercedes had skidded prior to the tunnel, possibly as a result of hitting something becoming airborne, and then bounced off the wall into Pillar 13. The Mercedes had braked sharply ever from the skid marks and became airborne. 
where the tires kiss the side of the capping with the result that this out of control projectile finally slammed into Bella 13 within the tunnel. Mm. But the question was, what forced it to hit Bella 13? Could the two new cars Robin saw, the dark formal vehicles parked in front of the wrecked Mercedes, have had anything to do with the accident? There were eyewitnesses and they described this sandwiching because they were right there and they could see that the Mercedes was being, as it were, almost ambushed in the tunnel by this leading vehicle and the motorcycles. He couldn't get round the car in front and he had motorcycles right up the backside of the car. Perhaps the Firestones had vital information that was apparently being suppressed. But why? In the days and weeks following the crash, other supposed witnesses came forward with sometimes startling new information. As I explained to investigative reporter Dylan Howard, sorting the truth from the fantasies became a full-time job. This particular witness called Francois Levy, he told this fantastic story, and he's on every front page of newspaper from around the world, that he was out that night in Paris with his wife and was going home just after midnight and went through this tunnel. He then says as he was going through the tunnel, he kept looking back in his rearview mirror. He saw this big car chase inside the tunnel, different cars chasing this Mercedes, and it looked all sinister. It was something out of Hollywood. And then a big crash and a big flash of light. I'm thinking, how can you see that when you're leaving a tunnel that's on an incline? And the accident only happened in this little tunnel in the middle. So where's all the car chase? It didn't make any sense to me. And in the end, the most fascinating thing was that Levi decided that he had to tell people about this. So he contacted the El Fayed family and gave a statement on the Sunday to their lawyers. Now, how do you do that? Isn't your first port of call the police? Isn't your only port of call the police? How does he know that this is to do with Mohammed Al-Fayed or the Fayed camp? So all these alarm bells were going off to the point that I consider this statement to be a fabrication. Did you confront Francois? Tried my hardest, but the answer's no. He just would not meet me. After 22 years, I have not been able to lock him down and unravel his motives for putting himself in this game. What are your thoughts? Sensational or not? I think there's uh, people that like to attach themselves to, to crime scenes and the crimes and overquote and overspecify what they saw or where they were exactly. I think this man may well have gone through that tunnel, but as far as the veracity of his evidence, I can't believe it. And I believe he's probably pulled together a cock and bull story. And why? Only he would know. And that helped fuel, in many ways, a lot of the larger conspiracy theories that exist to this very day. Totally. That, that was as, the seed. Such as terrorism, such as MI5 and MI6 British intelligence. This was the seed. Absolutely spot on, Dylan. If you analyse it like you've just done, this was the start of another monstrous set of conspiracy theories a la JFK. And it's, they're still stuck to it today like the proverbial to a blanket.
Francois Levi was not the only so-called headline-making witness to play fast and loose with the truth. There's another man involved who put his head into the game a week after this that is even worse. There's a lawyer by the name of Gary Hunter claims to the world media and he got more attention than Francois Levi. Who is Gary Hunter? Gary Hunter's a lawyer out of London. He claimed that he was staying at a hotel near to the crash scene, near to the crime scene. And just after midnight, he heard screeching of tyres and all this theatre, this extraordinary description of cars chasing each other, high speed, brakes. You, you could almost imagine it was a, a, a quick overview of a James Bond film. He then says that he looked out the window of his hotel and he could see all this going on and hear all this going on. And then all of a sudden there was a crash there was a number of cars involved. I rang him and I went to London and saw him. I finished up on his doorstep in London in his office. And then all of a sudden, Gary started backpedalling. He started running backwards from his story. He didn't want to know about it. And all of a sudden, Colin, I'm sorry, we had an appointment, but now I can't talk to you. Please leave me alone, I can't talk to you. He went back to France, determined to prove Gary Hunter was wrong. And there's a way of doing that. Elimination, it's a method of investigation. So I spent the whole day knocking on all the little tiny hotels around the area and bingo. Towards the end of the day, I found this little hotel. I found a man that was helping me behind the counter and I, and I gave him the name Gary Hunter and he was good enough to open the register and show me Gary Hunter and his wife were staying there that night. I said, show me the room. He took me upstairs. I went straight to the so-called window that he looked out and saw all this James Bond action happening. And you look out and you look into a brick wall. So it was a load of nonsense, but you'll see nothing that indicates some sort of massive James Bond chase going on. What you do really see is just the wall of another building. And this hotel was about seven streets away from the crime scene. So A, how could he have seen anything at the crime scene and all this chase? And B, how could he have heard anything? Things were getting desperate. The sensation seekers were in danger of swamping the entire investigation and of clouding the genuine witness statements of people like Pierre, the paparazzo photographer, and Jack and Robin Firestone, whose testimony raised as many questions as it seemed to answer. And I was still no closer to knowing exactly why the Mercedes lost control prior to the tunnel. And then a breakthrough. In October, French cops had revealed that a broken taillight from another vehicle was found at the crash scene and forensic tests on the Mercedes uncovered white paint marks from a Fiat Uno on the side of the black Mercedes. Back in Paris now, I talked Dylan through how I came to interview a lady who wishes only to be known as Sabine, and how what she saw that night would prove to be the single most important piece to the puzzle of how Diana came to die. I would spend the better part of three weeks knocking on doors as I chased all the different clues down. Essentially, it amounted to very little. People just didn't want to know or didn't hear anything, they were asleep, time of the accident was too late, etc., etc. And then I came across some report somewhere about a woman and a husband who had just come home from a, a romantic dinner out in a restaurant nearby to where the accident happened. But their approach to the freeway, the Place de la Alma, was to enter the freeway outside the tunnel, the other side of the tunnel. They entered the freeway through their designated merge lane. And as soon as they did, 
This little car, this little white Fiat comes out, was staggering out of the tunnel and seemed to be all dinged up or beat up in, in the body panels. I mean, she's the crucial witness, right? Mm -hmm. So this to me smacks of somebody I must talk to. The information is there that this could be a real key witness. A woman and a husband coming home, well-to-do people, wanting to enter the freeway from the outside of the tunnel, sees a white Fiat Uno wobbling past, trying to get around them, and the driver kept looking back. Well, this to me is gold, and we're determined. We are absolutely determined to find this woman, sit her down, and try and do memory recall with her, and try and get her to tell us more than what she said just generally to the media. We just had a dinner on, on this side, on the left bank, and uh, we crossed the bridge, the bridge de l'Alma, a little bit after midnight. And just at that point, at the end of the tunnel, we uh, met the Fiat Uno. He was uh, zigzagging, we thought he was drunk. When I looked at the car, there were a bump on the car and scratch on the, on the paint of the car. Just to stay on the damage on the side of the car, do you think it was on the driver's door or the passenger door? No, in the back. The back. Mm -hmm. From a tail like Behind forward. the driver, on the left. Yes. East-west scrape At marks. the end of the car. Mm. Very good. Okay, and they're in the east-west direction? Yeah, not uptown, yes, east-west. A white Fiat Uno, driving erratically and exiting the tunnel in the direction that Diana's Mercedes had been travelling, and with visible scratches running horizontally along the one side. This was sensational information. But as we've already heard, white Fiat Unos were the most popular car in France at that time, with over 4,600 in Paris alone. And even with the scratches, finding the right one would be like searching for the proverbial needle in the haystack. Unless, of course, Sabine could identify the driver. He was a uh, small, uh, with uh, short black hair and uh, uh, a tan skin. He was looking uh, in his mirror like something upset him. Did he look calm or did he look drunk or agitated or can you think no, of... No, agitated. And on the back of the seats there were a dog, uh, uh, a big dog, and he was having a muzzle an orange muzzle. Now you said you saw the driver of that vehicle that night? Mm-hmm. He was sitting on the left, right. That represents the driver? Mm-hmm, yeah. You also said that there was a, a dog in the car. Yeah. Do you remember where the dog was? Yes, just behind the driver. He was looking at the window. So if we call that the, the dog. Now can you, with this highlighter, indicate which rear tail light you saw that was damaged? Uh, on this side. And there were scratches on the side of the car. This way. There was no doubt in my mind that Sabine had finally solved the mystery of what caused Henri Paul drunk, on prescription drugs and speeding at 106 miles per hour to lose control of his car. The physical evidence I'd collected prior to the tunnel, along with the paint scratches, broken taillight and now Sabine's statement all showed the Mercedes and the Fiat Uno had collided and now 
For the first time, we had a description of the driver and of his dog. Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana, case solved. The driver of the white Fiat and where he was and what had happened to that car was one of those ongoing mysteries that haunted the whole death of Diana story. If you or I tried to make a car disappear, I promise you we could not do it. There is always some trace of it or other. But in this case, the French police, who had all the resources they could possibly need, have never found the white Fiat. He wouldn't have even seen it. It would have just been, he's turned onto the road, a clip, that's what he would have told. He wouldn't have known, he would have seen the car. There is another alternative theory that the white Fiat was one that belonged to a French photographer called Anderson, and he allegedly committed suicide, but he had two bullets in his head. I don't know how in suicide you managed to put two bullets in your head, but that's a matter for cleverer people than me. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved is hosted by me, Colin McLaren. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and is production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved wherever you get podcasts.